some of us in the body, some of us in the family are saved from unrighteousness. We heard that this morning. Some of us are saved from righteousness. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? Urban talk. You know what I'm talking about? Some of us are saved from unrighteousness. This brother was saved from unrighteousness. Some of us are saved from righteousness. Apostle Paul said, for me, before Jesus, in regard to the righteousness is in the law, I was blameless. But such things were gained to me, those I counted lost for the knowledge of the righteousness of Christ. So uh, it's not a matter that he was saved more than you are if you were raised to be outwardly righteous and took holy communion and were confirmed and, 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 and was baptized and even went to Sunday school. That's possible that you were outwardly righteousness and someday you were saved. So let us not say that, oh, I wish I had a testimony like that. That brother will be the first one to say, oh, no, no, you don't want to no, live the life that I was saved from. So don't you say, I need a testimony like that. Oh, no, no. Uh, we're all saved by the grace of God, either saved from an unrighteous life or from an outwardly righteous life. And we're in in the family, all saved by the grace of God. I know you're not Baptist, but do I hear an amen? amen. <laughs> Some of you Presbyterians would say, Amen. <laughs> okay. The books of Samuel. In our journey through the Old Testament for the fifth time, Oh, yeah, if I do that, I'll get the glory of God on my head here, so I better not do that. Um, um, in our journey through the Old Testament by characters this time, we have come to the books of Samuel. I call it here the books of Samuel. We call it First and Second Samuel. Actually, in the Hebrew Bible, it's First and Second Kings, and what we call First and Second Kings is Third and Fourth Kings. Uh, because the kingdom arises, the kingdom of Israel arises in 1 Samuel. So whether you call it 1 and 2 Kings, as the Hebrew Bible does, and also the Septuagint does, or you call it 1 and 2 Samuel, as it is in our English Bibles, we are in the books uh, that uh, first introduce the kingship. Kingship gone wrong with Saul, and then finally kingship gone right with David. And the name of, uh, attached to these two books, the first and second Samuel, is the name of the man who was the kingmaker, the kingmaker, the king anointer, and that was Samuel. But the books of Samuel have a lot to say about a lot of people. But let's just first of all talk about Samuel, who only appears in the message this morning uh, for a very, very brief notice, and he's still a child when we will we, end the message. But he becomes, uh, 
I'm not going to say the key figure in First and Second Samuel, but a key figure. Uh, he's a totally unique person in the Old Testament. There are priests and there are judges. There are prophets. But very few people have the role that Samuel has. He's a priest, uh, but he's also the last of the judges. We finished Judges a little while ago, then we went into Ruth. Um, uh, so, so, but, but he's the last of the judges, but he's also a prophet. He is considered in Israelite history as the founder of the prophetic order. There were individuals who were called prophets before Samuel, simply because they received a message from God, Abraham, Moses. But the founding of the order of the prophets, if you want to say it that way, really it begins with Shmuel, as he's called. And uh, it, it, Israel today, if you're um, um, named Samuel, your official name is Shmuel, but they don't call you that. They call you Shmuley. <laughs> Shmuley, yes, right, yeah. Do you call me William? No, you call me Willie. Anyway, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, so, uh, uh, so every modern Israeli goes by a nickname, the nickname of David. No, it's doo-doo. Yeah, no, uh, seriously, the nickname for David is doo-doo. So, so when we had David Kalisher come here, and everybody knew him as doo-doo. I said, when you come here, David, don't introduce yourself as doo-doo, okay? Yeah, he says, yeah, he says, I've been warned. <laughs> So Israelis have nicknames, and Shmuel would be Shmuley, or even Shmu, which is not not, not a good word in Yiddish. But anyway, so little Shmuley ends up being a priest, he ends up being a judge, he ends up being the founder of the prophets, and he's really a transitional figure between the judges and the kings. Is he a judge? Yes. Is he a king? No. Is he a priest? Yes. He's a transitional person. I like to call him a king maker because it falls to uh, uh, Samuel as uh, the uh, high priest uh, or leading priest of Israel to anoint not only the first but the second kings of Israel, Saul and David. Don't call him doo-doo. Okay, all right. Uh, David, Saul and David. Uh, So he's a kingmaker. He's a totally unique uh, person in that regard. Later high priests who would anoint a king were not judges and were not prophets. So uh, here's the main character, at least in the first 25 chapters of 1 Samuel. The other main characters are Saul and David. Three main characters, but in the three sections of the books, uh, uh, excuse me, 1 Samuel, the three sections of 1 Samuel, there's a transition going on from Eli to Samuel, from Samuel to Saul, and from Saul to David. So, yes, Samuel is the key figure in chapters 1 to 8, but when when he comes on the scene, it's Eli who is the uh, head priest, the high priest. Saul comes on the scene in chapters 9 to 15, and there's a transfer of authority 
from Samuel to Saul. David is anointed as the successor of Saul, but he doesn't take over right away. Uh, In chapters 16 through 31, we see a transition in leadership from Saul to David. God has rejected Saul, and David is his man, but there's a period of transition. So things don't always happen neat and clean in these transitions, uh, in, in these transferences from one to another. There's a trans transition. So let's look, please, today at 1 Samuel 1, and I call it two dysfunctional families in 1 Samuel 1. Uh, uh, 1 Samuel 1, please turn there. Two dysfunctional families. Now, I grew up with Ozzy and Harriet. And Father Knows Best. And uh, those probably to today, they would be called corny shows. Leave it to Beaver. (laughs) Father Knows Best. Ozzy and Harriet. Have you ever heard of those shows in South Africa? I have not. Guess what? People your age in America have never heard of them. (laughs) But anyway, you're welcome, uh, you know. Uh, uh, I grew up with that. And they weren't perfect families. But you know, they weren't dysfunctional families. And somebody says, but you know... People weren't like that, but we wanted to be like Leave It to Beaver. We we wanted to be like Fathers Knows Best. We wanted to be like Ozzy and Harriet. I don't watch a lot, none, of family uh, situation comedies, situation families on TV today, but I know enough about them. I don't want to be like those people. Do you? Uh, no. So, so uh, I realize there might be a little bit too much idealism uh, in, in, in those 50s and early 60s family uh, programs on TV. But you did come away oftentimes saying, wow, I wish I had a family like that. I wish I was in a family like that. Today, no, I'm told. Uh, dysfunctionality is... The norm. Well, let me tell you, dysfunctionality is the norm. And even when we look back at those idealized family situation comedies in the 50s and 60s, we noticed that everybody wasn't perfect. But their falling short was not what was always paraded before our eyes. What today, I think, is the more dysfunctional the better is the norm uh, in entertainment today, not only on TV, but in families, uh, in movies. Well, guess what? Welcome to dysfunctionality in 1 Samuel 1. Every family is dysfunctional to a degree. There is no perfect family. And anybody out there that says, oh, Dr. Varner, mine is. (laughs) Oh, just wait. This functionality will arrive at your door sooner than you think when you say, oh, we've got the perfect family. No, uh, dysfunctionality is a characteristic. The difference is to what degree? To what degree? Why? Because families are made up of sinners. 
the child goes astray from the womb, (laughs) seeking selfishness. You do not have to teach your child selfishness. It seems to come inbred within them. Mine, 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 mine. I know you had a child that from, uh, from, uh, from the age of one on was sharing their toy with their baby brother. What? (laughs) And from the age of two, they were always sitting together, the children singing Kumbaya. (laughs) And then when you're driving down the road, they're in the back seat praying together. (laughs) You know, that's not the case. That's not the case, particularly for the couple of girls over there that I know. You were at your brother's... You weren't? Okay, good. All right, good. So you don't have to teach them to be selfish. It comes inbred within them. So so dysfunctionality is there. How do we handle it is is the case. How do we handle it? And it may be encouraging for you to know that there's not only one, but two dysfunctional families that are introduced. In chapter 1. All the characters are introduced in the first three verses. Follow me as I read. I'm reading from the ESV. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim. Just say Rama and you'll be okay. There was a certain man of Rama of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah. Elkanah, that's the first character. The son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah or Hannah, and the name of the one was Penina. Penina or Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Three characters introduced right away, Elkanah, uh, Hannah, and Penina. But verse 3 introduces three more characters. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship, to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, or Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Wow. Three verses, the six main characters that will be in the drama over the next few chapters are introduced. And uh, though Hophni and Phinehas do not have a major role in this chapter, they do have a sad major role in chapters 2 and 3. So this is uh, our characters, Elkanah, Hannah, and Penina. Eli, Hophni, Hophni, and Phinehas. Now, for the deep spiritual lesson from their names. What do you notice of the similarity of their names? E-H and P. Isn't that a deep spiritual lesson? Okay, good. (laughs) But it helps for you to remember E-H-P, Elkanah, Hannah, and Penina, or Penina, and E-H-P, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. As I say, the first four of those characters, Elkanah, Hannah, Penina, and Eli, figure in this chapter. Hophni and Phinehas are only mentioned as Eli's sons uh, and, and were priests as well. They figure in the drama in chapters 2 and chapter 3. But both of these families are dysfunctional. And I want to zero in on that dysfunctionality and how it developed, how it was handled by both of them. Uh, Let's look, please, at Elkanah, 
Hannah, and Penina. Verse 4. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Now we start to get into conflict. Dysfunctional families, even those who are less dysfunctional than others, have conflict. The conflict sometimes is between them. Sometimes the conflict is because what life has dealt them, right? Sometimes the pain is because of their behavior, and we're going to see that with Hophni and Phinehas. Sometimes the pain is simply because life has beaten them up. And with the first three, it's that pain It's that dysfunctionality. Sometimes life deals you a hard blow. How are you going to deal with it? Sometimes life deals you a good hand. How are you going to deal with that? See, that comes in here as well. Life had dealt Hannah a hard blow, a hard hand. The Lord had shut up her womb. How will she handle that? Penina had children. How will she handle that? We will see not very well. Okay? Uh, So there's the situation. Now, three times a year, Israelite males were required to go to the tabernacle to sacrifice. In the spring at Passover... Uh, oftentimes that's in April. In June, at the Festival of Weeks, uh, we call it by its Greek name, Pentecost. And then in the fall, the Festival of Booths, uh, Sukkot, the Festival of Tabernacles, all right? Those were pilgrim festivals. So at one of these, we don't know which one it is, but I'm going to guess it's Sukkot, the Festival of Tabernacles, for reason that I might bring up a little bit later on. So they come up together. They didn't have to bring their wives, but sometimes they would bring their wives and families. Only Israelite males were required to do this. So Elkanah, being a righteous Israelite male, would come up and his wives would come up with him. I think Hannah came up for a particular reason, to help herself deal with her barrenness. Let's see how that drama develops. Verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her her rival. This is Hannah's rival. Her rival? Her rival is also the wife of Elkanah. All right? Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. Because the Lord had closed her womb. Instead of going to her and saying, Sister and the Lord, I'm going to pray for God's will for you and that he'll give you a life and ministry in this family. Even if you don't have children, she teased her. She mocked her. She added to her emotional pain. Here comes the dysfunctionality. Verse 7, so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. 
Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Provoke her. We don't know the words she used. My guess, it was along the lines of, so you think you're really religious, Hannah? Well, if you're religious, why can't you have babies? I can. And the next time she gets pregnant and the bigger she gets, no doubt she walks around in front of Hannah at home and say, look here, look here, look here. God must like me. What's he done for you today, Hannah? Oh, the pain. You know, I am not going to say that this is an example of a woman being catty. Because men can be bad too. We're going to see two very unsavory male characters, Hophni and Phinehas. And men can be brutal in their words just as much as women. But women do it in a catty way. And I think that's what's going on here. My wife and I, to relax from the humdrum responsibilities of the day, oftentimes we'll watch The Amazing Race. Why? Because these people are traveling to some of the places we've been. And sometimes we say, you know, honey, we've not been there, and maybe we should go there. And we enjoy seeing them travel around the world. But let me tell you, the pressures of something like a competition can bring out the ugliness in people. Competition can bring out the ugliness in people. And boy, do you see that on The Amazing Race. After a while, I just get tired of it and say, let's just see the race, cameras. Let's don't focus on what she is saying about her and so forth. You need a nose job. (laughs) Oh, yeah, she finishes racing and all she can do is attend to her makeup. You know what? That's catty. Now, some of the men say some bad things, too. So I'm not picking on the women here. But women can be catty and can say things like stick a knife in you and just turn it. And that's this catty woman, Penina. Wow. Dysfunctionality. You know what? Two wives, double trouble. (laughs) Don't take it from me. Take it from the Bible. Two wives, double trouble. God's divine ideal is monogamy. Man's choice is bigamy. Yes, God tolerated it, but that was not his divine ideal. His divine ideal, God's mathematics is this. One plus one equals, you got it. Not one plus two equals, one plus one equals one. Therefore, a man shall live, leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they too shall become a chad basar, basar chad, one flesh. God's divine ideal is one plus one, not one plus two or one plus three. And whenever you see it, you've got what is called in Yiddish tsuris. In Hebrew, they call it sarot, troubles. 
Oi, have I got sores? Have I got troubles? You married two of them, buddy. What do you expect? Abraham, not one, but two. Ah, look at those girls going at it. Sarah and Hagar. Same thing. Hagar says, look at me. I'm pregnant again, Sarah, and you're not. (laughs) Catty. And they're so mean to each other that finally Abraham says, enough, enough, enough. Go, Hagar, go, leave, go back to Egypt. And she goes, and God rescues her in the desert and says, go back. Ah, caddy. Uh, You asked for it, Abraham. God says, you and Sarah are going to have children. You unwilling to wait, okay? You asked for it. Wherever you see bigamy in the Old Testament, the family has problems. So it's, I say that bigamy or polygamy is its best commentary on itself in the Bible. God did not have to say, bigamy is wrong. He says, just look at Abraham, just look at Jacob, just look at David, just look at Solomon, just look at Elkanah. Now, why did he marry uh, Penina? There's evidence, I think, in the text that Hannah was his first wife, Hannah is barren. And so instead of accepting that and trusting God, maybe someday he'll give us a child, he marries Penina, and she has children. And what happens? Dysfunctional family. So um, uh, Elkanah, you asked for it, buddy, and you've got headaches with these wives. Dysfunctional family, and Hannah is in pain. Look, please, uh, verse 7. It went on from year to year as she went up to the house of the Lord. She used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? It looks like uh, uh, Elkanah is basically a good guy. He's not rejoicing in the pain uh, of, uh, of Hannah. But what can he do? Verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, Eli, new character, the priest, probably an older man now, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, right outside the entrance into what the Old Testament calls the tabernacle, sometimes uh, because the tabernacle became a permanent location at Shiloh. It's occasionally referred to as the Naas, the uh, temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed, this is Hannah, and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give to him all the days of his life and no razor shall touch upon his head. Some ancient texts actually clarify that and they add, and he will be a Nazarite all his life. Because that's basically what she's saying. If you give me a child, I will dedicate him to you, and no razor will come upon his head, and the other uh, requirements would be not to touch the fruit of the vine and not to touch uh, a dead person. So there are only three lifelong Nazarites that are mentioned in the Bible. One is Samson. The the second one is uh, uh, Samuel. 
And I think I asked this when we were back at Samson, and nobody got it, so I'm not going to ask it now because everybody will want the Starbucks coffee that I offered then. (laughs) And who is the third lifelong Nazarite? John the Baptist, right, yes, okay. Or evidently a lifelong Nazarite. Well, that's her vow. That's her vow. You know, it's good. She prayed. (laughs) She didn't say, oh, God, why did you give me this woman in my house? She didn't say, oh, God, why did you make me barren? She just turned it over to the Lord. And she said, I won't even keep him. I'll give him back to you. Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. She was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Now, I'll tell you something. There's two things here. This could indicate the spiritual insensitivity and blindness of Eli. It could. Um, That he couldn't recognize that this woman was really silently calling out to God. She was playing something like this. Like that. And Eli says, the woman's drunk. She's praying silently. Her lips are moving. Now, I want to tell you something. In ancient times... People read out loud. They also prayed out loud. That Jewish tradition of men, of, of people reading and studying out loud can, can be seen in, in, in a yeshiva. You go into a yeshiva and uh, there's two boys sitting together and they're, they're reading out loud. They're reading out loud. They're reading the scriptures out loud. Reading was done out loud. Philip joins himself to the chariot and he hears the Ethiopian reading Isaiah the prophet. Reading was done out loud. I'm not saying it was never done silently, but when it was, it was the exception. Praying is done out loud. And that Jewish tradition is continued down to today. Jewish prayers are generally out loud, not silently. Just go to the Western Wall. Shema Yisrael Adonai Lohenam Melech Alam Asher Kedeshanu B'Mitzvotav And I multiply that by a thousand. A thousand guys and maybe 500 women. It's, it's a cacophony of praying out loud. Out loud. So, it may be that Eli is just insensitive without picking up the pain that is behind this silent praying of uh of Hannah, or, or it may be that he's saying, why isn't she praying? Why, why is she? Why isn't she praying? See? So, um, but, uh, because her grief and her pain is so great that she doesn't want to display it before everybody. Oh, God, give me a son, and I'll give him back to you. She just pours out her heart to the Lord in silence. And he thinks she's drunk. It may be also a commentary on Eli's spiritual insensitivity. And that's going to come up later. When young Shmuley comes to Eli in chapter 3 and says, I heard a voice saying, Samuel, Samuel, was it you? No, it wasn't me. 
And again, he comes again. He says, I heard a voice. Was it you, Eli, saying Samuel said, no, it wasn't me. It could indicate that Eli's a bit spiritually insensitive there. But just as in that case, where on the third time he says, it's the Lord, (laughs) and say, speak, Lord, your servant hears. Here, he finally gets it. So I think it's probably that Eli just doesn't get it. And that may be a commentary on Eli as well. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved. Her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk, woman? Put away the wine from you. Hannah says, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your woman as a, your servant as a worthless woman, a daughter of Belial. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And then Eli gets it. Then Eli answers, said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made him. So, As I see Eli, I see a man who doesn't always get it at first, but he finally gets it. And that's what he does here. Go, and may God grant your petition. Verse 18, she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. They'll never know that you're doing it. Okay, good. Thank you, sweetheart. Didn't plug it in. It went dead. (laughs) Now what am I going to do? I don't have my notes. No, no, it's, it's, uh, it's all right. Lesson from Hannah. You can sit and complain. You can go to a counselor. You can ask for advice. You can say, woe is me. Or you can pray. That is a profound lesson, isn't it? That's a profound lesson. She prayed about it. Don't forget that, okay? You can complain to others. You can write letters. You could say, Penina, you are a stinking, and I won't say the word. Or you can pray about it. Why not try praying about it? That was the tremendous insight from Matthew Henry that I was going to tell you from my dead-in-the-water iPad. Okay, good. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now, she had no answer from God right there. But the reason she went away no longer sad is that she turned it over to the Lord. Turned it over to the Lord. She had no assurance right then that she was going to have a child. The woman went away. Her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning, worshiped before the Lord, went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah knew uh, Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. 
And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Shmuel, because I have asked him from the Lord. Hebraic debate on this. Is it from Shema and El, heard by the Lord? Is it from Shaul Ma'el, asked from God? But anyway, we can talk about that, sir, in the back in Hebrew class on Tuesday. You can talk about that. But, you know, I'm not sure we have to know. It means God has heard. Okay? And so she named him God has heard. Shmuel. What a name. Why are you named that? Because God answered my mom's prayer. Verse 21, the man Elkanah and his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice to pay his vow, but Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. That's not unbelief. That's not disobedience. As a matter of fact, women were not even required to go up on these pilgrimages, only Israelite men. So she had motherly duties She shouldn't be traveling while she's uh, first initially raising this small child and nursing this child. So she was allowed to stay back, and Elkanah knew that. Verse 23, Elkanah and her husband said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now, I have no law, and I have no guidance from God as to when you should stop milking, excuse me, when you should (laughs) stop milking your child. Yes, right. When you should stop nursing your child. I have no information on that. I have no word from God. In the ancient world, though, it was longer than it is today, right? And in some sections of the world today, it might go up to three years, maybe even longer. And some of you might say, hey, 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 that kid, I'm almost sitting on his lap rather than him sitting on my lap, Uh, you know, I mean, uh, the way it is uh, in the ancient world. As a matter of fact, there's a reference in an apocryphal book that actually says it was three years old. Uh, when uh, weaning took place. And if you don't know what weaning is, ask your wife uh, afterwards, okay? So um, he's at least three years old. And she gives him back. You got to think about that. I don't know how many years she was barren. I don't know how many years she was without a child. But finally, she gets a child. And then at three, he's gone. Just think about that. But she's so thankful for God answering her prayer. She gives him back to the Lord. Verse 23, Elkin, her husband, said to her, oh, I'm sorry, uh, verse 24, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with the three-year-old bull, ephah of flour, skin of wine, brought him to the house of the Lord. Those are sacrificial uh, elements. The child was young. Doesn't say how long, but how old, but probably at least three. Oh, yeah, there's a reason for that, I'm told. I'm told. Not only because it's good, it's normal, but... Uh, In the ancient world, they probably did not have the type of food, baby food, that you start to feed a child when 
say they're weaned, they sound like I know what I'm talking about. Uh, um, uh, when they're weaned at one, you start giving them baby food, but you don't, you know, you don't give them a chicken's leg. You don't give them a slab of beef. It's children's food. And they probably didn't have that transitional food. Uh, so uh, the weaning took a little bit longer. So the child was young. Say he's three. They slaughtered the bull. They brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I'm the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, some translations have, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. The Hebrew does not sustain this idea of loaning. Because in English, a loan is what? I'm loaning it to you. You better pay me back. The idea of this, I'm loaning him to the Lord, so the Lord's going to give him back to me? No, it, it, it's not lent or loaned. It's give. The Lord has given me this child, so I have given him to the Lord. Don't expect the loan to be returned unless it was a loan from God to her that she's now returning. She's, the Lord gave me this child. I'm giving him back to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. And then it says, and he worshiped the Lord there. Because it's male, it could either refer to Eli, it could refer to Elkanah. I think it refers to Sammy. I think it refers to Shmuley. I think it refers to the young Samuel, who even as a small child worships the Lord. And that sets the tone for chapter 3 when God calls him, Samuel, Samuel, I got something for you to do. What a beautiful story. Who's missing in this story? Penina. What happened to her? Mercifully, she passes off the scene into oblivion, and the narrator doesn't mention her. It's probably mercifully for her. But omitting any further role that she has probably is a comment on, Penina, you were a bad girl, being so catty and uh, taking advantage of the fact that you had children and she didn't. So she just is. Narrators oftentimes will do that in the Hebrew scriptures. Instead of saying, uh, Hannah is good and Penina is bad, pronouncing judgment on them, they leave it to the reader. Now next week there's a poem in chapter 2, a poem of praise. Our brother Chris Burnett is teaching on that next week. Right, Chris? Where are you? Right, Chris, where are you? Speak, Lord, for your servant heareth. <laughs> Chris, Chris, right? The poems give the theology. I'm sorry? I'm going to increase your salary, girl. <laughs> oh, man, she's got all of Matthew Henry here. But Matthew, oh, sweetheart, this is so much. I, you know, I don't have... I love you, but it's just a little bit too much. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, this talks about Penina. It was Hannah's affliction, and a great affliction it was, added to all the rest, vinegar to the wounds of her spirit. Yeah. 
Yeah, so she turned it over to the Lord. She prayed. Now, keep in mind, it doesn't mean if you just pray, you're going to get pregnant, gals. doesn't mean that. <laughs> hey, listen, I didn't mean for anybody to laugh at that. Uh, it, it, you know, it doesn't mean that. But you will find joy and rest in your spirit if you turn it over to the Lord. If you turn it over to the Lord. And if you do that, God will give you children that may not come from your own womb, that you can invest your life in and your ministry in instead of sitting around sucking your thumb as to why it didn't go well for me. There's this widow over here that's got a kid. Maybe you can take an interest in that child. And maybe you can have a, 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 a child, that widow, that young widow. And maybe you can have a grandchild, too, as you invest your life in, in, in some other child. So let me encourage you that that may be a way that the Lord answers your cry about barrenness. But the Lord did not answer her in the way that some of us would think. Snatching the child away from her at the age of three? No, no. Hannah was thankful. Hannah was thankful. So God may answer your prayer not exactly in the way that you think he's going to answer it. So the important thing is to rest in him And if he answers, you accept his answer, even if it may not be in the way that you think it ought to be answered. God knows. And let God deal with Penina. You don't have to deal with her. She just goes off the scene, probably still bitter, because we read later that Hannah has more kids. (laughs) So let the Lord deal with Penina. You don't have to deal with her angry, bitter spirit. Just leave her with the Lord, and you be satisfied with what the Lord gives you and invest your life in people, not in things. We got a lot more. One of these dysfunctional families gets more dysfunctional the more we read. But let's be thankful for this dysfunctional family and God's grace and mercy being shown to them. Shall we stand for closing prayer? We've talked of grace this morning, Lord, grace in the life of this brother who you rescued out of unrighteousness. And we thank you for the grace that rescues us sometimes out of our self-righteousness. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for Elkanah, even though he probably made a mistake in trying to move ahead of you, but yet he was tender and he was loving and he was a husband who loved his wife. Thank you for Hannah. Thank you for her faithfulness. Thank you for her turning it over to you and not being bitter. Thank you for the joy that she had with those three years And thank you that she fulfilled her vow and gave him back to the Lord. We pray that we will give our children to you, O God. It's hard whether it's 
at the age of three or 18, God, it's hard to give them back, to let them go. And I know some mothers right now in this group that are having a hard time with that. Pray that you'd give mercy and grace to those moms to know how and when it's best to let go and return home without that child. Guide us, we pray, and may your mercy sustain us. In Jesus' name, amen.